Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Hernan Diaz was just awarded the 2023 Pulitzer Prize for his novel Trust. Last year, I had the opportunity to talk with Diaz about the book, his perspective on the Gilded Age, the persistent myths surrounding wealth, and the impact of these narratives on society as a whole. We also explored how the affluent can essentially buy their own reality amidst the enigmatic allure of money. Diaz's novel couldn't be more relevant to our current times. And here is my conversation from last year with Pulitzer Prize winner Hernan Diaz. It was Balzac who said that behind every great fortune, there is a crime. This was repeated and reaffirmed by Mario Puzo in his epigraph to The Godfather. For many, particularly on the progressive side of the ledger, it seems to be repeated every day on Wall Street, in Silicon Valley, and among the wealthy members of Congress. But why is this idea so contagious? Perhaps it's because we don't do a very good job teaching about money, about wealth, and also because, as Fitzgerald said, the rich are different. At the very least, they're interesting to observe. People were glued to the Met Gala this week, to the actions of Elon Musk, and to TV stories about the failures of rich, young entrepreneurs. Perhaps there's no better way to understand all of this than through the lens of history. In this case, the Gilded Age, the Roaring Twenties, which gave rise to so much that we take for granted in the world of money today. This is what my guest, award-winning novelist Hernan Diaz does in his new novel, Trust. Hernan Diaz is the author of two novels translated into more than 20 languages. His first novel, In the Distance, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. His work has appeared in numerous prestige publications, and it is my pleasure to welcome Hernan Diaz to the program to talk about his new novel, Trust. Hernan Diaz, thanks so much for joining us. Jeff, thank you so much for that generous uh, introduction, and it's a pleasure to be in Napa, even if it is, uh, you know, virtually. Right. Well, it is certainly a delight <laughs> to have you here. I want to talk about this comparison of, of the Gilded Age, the Roaring Twenties, to the world we live in today. And I, I, I was struck thinking about this and about the, the conversation we were going to have today when I read the other day that, that the Met Gala in New York, the theme of it was the Gilded Age. It just seems so, so perfect in so many ways. Oh my! I actually, you know what? I didn't know that was the theme of the of the of the Met Gala. I don't know what to make of that. <laughs> but yes, to be honest with you, uh, given everything that's going on, but um, yes, uh, the um, I think at the core of of the of the of the novel and what I the parallel uh, that I see between sort of the 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 1920s and the Gilded Age before that and today is that there is this myth around wealth. There is uh, this myth of the self-made man. It's always a man, um, uh, you know, who through his ingenuity uh, and uh, hard work uh, rose to the top. We all know, and we see this in all the examples that you mentioned, that this is a complete fabrication. And underneath this fabrication, uh, a lot of uh, voices have been silenced. And this is what I wanted to put front and center in this book, especially... Uh, uh, the voices of women, the uh, the narratives of wealth uh, uh, don't feature any women. The the only places they're given are those of, you know, wife or secretary or perhaps victim, and uh, this is an important stereotype. I wanted to to subvert here while looking at uh, these myths around money and how they shape and reshape uh, uh, the reality um, uh, around themselves. 
Talk about those myths and, and how they evolve, why there are certain myths that just seem to be perennial. Right. Uh, I was about to say how they evolve, and I, I, I was thinking to myself, do they really evolve? And then you said perennial, which I think is actually uh, dead on the money, no pun intended. Uh, I, <laughs> uh, I think, you know, doing the vast archival research that I did toward this book, I realized that there is such a big continuity uh, between the world of the 1920s and that of the 2020s. Um, uh, I think uh, to a large extent, uh, the, I mean, and we could, we could talk about boring things like fiscal policy and, <laughs> and, and, and monetary, right. We could do that. And I think also, by the way, I should say, uh, we, they're meant to be boring because, you know, uh, they don't want us to think about them for too long, right. you know, but we're not going to go down that path. Uh, what, a, what I think the, the, the main parallel between these two times that I see is that in both cases, there was this ambition to actually purchase reality itself more than, you know, goods or services. There is this ambition, and we see this today in all the contemporary examples that you just gave, that the ultimate luxury good seems to have become reality itself. And how these wealthy people then and now their ultimate ambition is to bend and align reality and impose their version on reality on the rest of us. And I think this is a, a terrifying yet fascinating idea for a writer because it, 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 it deals with the distinction between fact and fiction and how narratives can shape our perception of everyday life. It does make me think about, you know, all this talk in the technology world today about yeah. virtual reality and, 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 and how it's, you know, coming on stream. It's almost as if virtual reality from a technological perspective is a way to democratize a fake kind of reality to the masses, the kind of world that wealthy people have lived in for a long time. Uh, wow, that's 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 insightful. I never I never thought of it that way. You 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 mean that it's a, that it's a way to have sort of even if it is an, as an avatar the, the experience of this world of excess is that, it, is that what it's you mean? a world of excess or or any world you want yeah. that you don't have to have the money. You don't have to have the billions of dollars right. to buy it. You can yeah. have it in your own living room. Right. Uh, I would. I, yes, I think I think that's totally true. But I, but I would take your simile, uh, you know, with this or this comparison with VR one one step further. I think technology here is one step behind of literature. I think literature has been doing this for a long time in two senses. It has allowed us to to experience vicariously these different realities that would otherwise be uh, inaccessible to us. It literature you know, has, providing, has been providing this experience uh, uh, for centuries. Um, but also, I would say that it is through narrative, and, and I go now beyond literature and include even other discourses like history, uh, certain uh, 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 highly partisan versions of uh, journalism and so on and so forth. Uh, so narratives in this broad sense have given us a virtual vision of reality and of history. I mean, over and over again, historians have shown us that so much of uh, what we take, we have taken to be historical fact, 
are indeed uh, narratives that have been distorted for ideological political gain, right? Virtual realities, in, in, in other words. So I think I think this uh, this game with what is uh, uh, what is real, what is virtual, is initially a textual game. And I think now you know technology is making it available through other means. But I think it's something that we as humans have been struggling and dealing with for for a couple of millennia. And as humans struggle with it, in in large part, it seems, and and even in this period that you write about in the twenties, in, in in the Gilded Age, that it there's constantly been this divide between those that experience it via narrative in that case, and those that mm-hmm. are able to buy their own reality. Yes, um, but again, I think I think the main point here is not look. Uh, when I read uh, literature in the American canon about wealth, a thing that I find constantly uh, in, in, in almost all of these books, even the, those that are very critical of the inequality and privilege uh, uh, that, that uh, lies behind every great fortune, even in those books, there is always this kind of fascination and fascination and, and bedazzlement by the very thing they had set out to critique, right? right, right. They become sort of, you know, you know what I mean? It's, yes. They, they, they become, they become absorbed in this, in this word of success and luxury and, 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 um, uh, and, and kind of forget <laughs> in the way that they, that the whole point of the book was to denounce all of those successes. So I was very careful in my own book, not to fall into that trap of, of becoming bedazzled myself by that experience of luxury, and uh, and I try to steer clear of that at 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 all times. How difficult was that? Um, it was you know it was it was a bit of a formal challenge because uh, I tell you why because um, I still wanted to convey sort of the let's call it sort of the hum of wealth, sort of that, that purr, that, you know, that, and that sense of gravitas that comes with an enormous fortune. So to do that without describing, I don't know, butlers and limousines and, you know, drawing rooms and expensive art was, was hard. And I, I tried to let the language and the syntax do the work, you know, more than, just little tchotchkes that one would drop here and there and, you know, luxury goods. Uh, To me, it was more about the tone. The gravitas is an interesting description because we've all seen so many people that don't have the gravitas at at some point in their lives and they become Mm -hmm. wealthy and they become surrounded with with the accoutrements of wealth and suddenly they take on that gravitas, although they're not different as people. It's just what's around them that's different. This is this is uh, this is this is great to hear because this is this is on my mind all the time. You know how uh, there there seems to be a some kind of magnetic force around money that that ripples and affects others, you know, even if the the person surrounded by this force remains the same, it's just the the sheer force of of capital seems to affect. And I think we're all, I mean, I I don't think anyone is truly immune to that. If we're all sincere, if we're all true to ourselves and sincere, like we're all affected by that and touched by it, even if we, 
dislike ourselves for being so, or, or maybe I shouldn't project this onto any, anyone else. I, I, I know that I feel that when I'm the few times I've been in contact with it. And, and that's it. That's something that to me is worth exploring and, and, and questioning and trying to challenge. Like, why, why do I feel that, you know? I guess yeah. the, another way to look at it is, is to find those cases where it doesn't happen. Something like lottery winners, for example, that, that, <laughs> that, that suddenly come into a huge sum of money and screw it up royally. They don't gain the gravitas. They don't get that magnetic pull. Yeah. It, it's it's right. different. So why is one different than the other? And what are those fine differences? I, I, I think I have an, a tentative answer to that. Uh, I think the difference is that uh, the lottery is like finding a treasure. Like there is, the difference is narrative. Right. In, in the lottery, there is no narrative. The narrative is very short. I went to the shop in the corner and bought a lottery <laughs> ticket and then I won. That, that is the extent of that story. There right. is no tale there. And that's why it, it's, it, it hasn't been magnetized or doesn't radiate this kind of mystical aura because there is no narrative. Whereas the, with heavy air quotes, the self-made man, it's all about the narrative. And it's all about the epic myth of, you know, that self of that self-aggrandizing uh, person and i think that the magnetic force or this this kind of uh, uh, almost uh, uh, sort of mystical ripple that is around money obviously has to do with the purchasing power that comes with a with a with a, with a great fortune but it also has to be has to do with this kind of uh, superhuman uh, um a quality that we are eager to attach to people who have amassed a great fortune. What about an inheritance when the money gets suddenly passed on? Right. The, uh, uh, trust, my, my novel deals, deals with that. Uh, uh, the, this big capitalist was probably the richest man in the world. This is, this is sort of the level of fortune that I was interested, of wealth that I was interested in, in engaging with. Uh, he is not a self-made man. There, there is no such thing. That, that is, that is, that is the, the point that the novel is trying to make. In his case, blatantly, he, he has inherited um, um, money that was made uh, originally uh, you know, by his great-grandfather, a banker during the Revolutionary War, one of America's first bankers, and passed on and enlarged uh, through generations. But... Uh, I believe that every great fortune is really, at, at its core, the result of some form of expropriation or another. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting because there are these two counter-narratives that run through, and I guess a lot of it is, is the American experience, and one is exactly what you're saying, and the other side is this, this kind of Randian notion of, of that self-made man. Oh, yes. <laughs> It's uh yeah I have um and I have very little patience for the for that Randian uh, notion <laughs> which is which is just a lazy reading of Nietzsche and it's just it's just it's just so worthless intellectually that I I don't even feel I can't even engage but the interesting thing about this Randian notion that you that you bring up which is totally pertinent um, has to do with this. Um, 
if you if you look at at the American conservative political agenda from the 1920s to the 2020s, there is the consistency is striking. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, remember Harding ran under the under the slogan "America First," which you know should sound familiar, and uh, fiscal policy was the same, immigration policy was the same, deregulation, small business, protectionism, uh, American exceptionalism. You know, it is all the same playbook um, over a century, and I think the bridge. The bridge between the the 1920s and the 2020s is exactly sort of this Randian period or Milton Friedman and the Chicago School, and then a little later uh, Ronald Reagan. So I think I think these are the stepping stones that get us from from the 1920s uh, through to the to the 2020s. But talk about like ridiculous myths around wealth. I mean, Anne Rand I think is uh, uh, high up there. What's frightening, though, is the, is the degree to which that narrative has become so much, a, I mean, exactly in, in the way that you say and the, the bridges that you talk about, the way it has become so ingrained in the culture and part of the culture. Yes, this, this to me is a source of endless fascination. And, and that, in fact, was what drew me initially to, to the project, that how, how, how is it possible that, 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 that capital and this myth of the self-made man, the exceptional individual, you know, fountainhead again. <laughs> um, uh, you know, how, how has this myth become so prevailing while at the same time uh, uh, money is this enormous taboo in American culture? We approach money with a great deal of priggishness. It's, a, it's, it's something that we don't talk about overtly, and yet it has this kind of transcendental dimension. Uh, within 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 our consciousness, to to use a strange word, so it was this dissonance between a certain prudishness and a certain exaltation um, uh, that 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 to me was very fascinating, and I thought it was worth exploring because the place of capital in in American identity is is absolutely crucial, as you as you just uh, stated. I mean, I guess it's it's two myths that come together. Because certainly another part of the founding narrative mythology of, of the country is is this Western mythology and the, the idea of the lonesome cowboy kind of thing. Exactly. And, and that yes. combined with the capital myths that you're talking about resolve, revolve precisely around this idea that, that we've been talking about. You you are totally true. You're totally right. And, you know, it's not by coincidence that my previous book was a Western of sorts that challenged that form of individualism. So there is a big continuity in terms of the way I'm thinking about, about American history, but you could take it also one step further back in time and talk about sort of this, this, this Calvinistic kind of uh, approach to, you know, material realization and success in this world. is a sign of, you know, redemption for, for, for the next. And I think that is, very deeply ingrained in our culture. And I was just reading, um, uh, you know, uh, John Williams wrote this beautiful uh, book called Butcher's Crossing. Uh, it's, it's a very important Western, and uh, the Library of America just published his writings. And there is an essay there on the Western that had, you know, been forgotten, and they just reissued it. And he he, tra- he also traces this notion of 
in the individual that uh, you see in the West, that you see in the great capitalist, back to transcendentalism, and before then, a certain reading of Calvinism. So I think I think there is an intellectual tradition there spanning a few centuries. You know, it's, it's interesting. You talk about Ronald Reagan, who. In, in terms of his popularity, embodied all of this, the, the Western exactly. aspect of it, the capital aspect of it, and even the Calvinistic aspect of it. Yeah, I think, I think that's totally right. It's not, it's not a coincidence. I mean, it's the whole package, for sure. Yeah. Frightening at a certain level. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It is. And you can just see in the way these threads come together today as as you deconstruct all the noise that's on the landscape today and you get to the core of it, it is exactly these ideas that we're talking about. It's exactly these ideas and they haven't, I mean, it's called conservatism for a good reason. You you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. These ideas, these ideas have... Remained cons- conserved themselves have, have remained imp- also impervious to change, you know, uh, for for all this time. And and you know, you and I just charted it back even beyond the 1920s, back into the into the past. And uh, and I think you know this is this is part of the the the, the growth. I think we're we're trying to. To, to make us a country, I don't know. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, it's it was a little disheartening, honestly, to to see this the, the, this consistency, the uh, ideological consistency that is behind uh, the uh, growth inequality in this country. And I know we can do better. Like I don't know, just off the top of my head, Standard Oil was broken up because it was simply too. It was you know it was simply too big. And and I think we've reached that point with with a, with a number of, of 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 we we know the companies we're talking we're referring to even if we don't speak their names, and it's just it's just too much power in 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 too few hands you know and uh, and something ought to be done about it and it probably won't. Well, the other part of it is though, and and particularly if one looks back a hundred years to to the Gilded Age and and all the power that was amassed then and by whom that these things do go through cycles, that there was a change that took place after that, and then it changed back. So there is a cyclical nature to some of this. I, 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 I hope so. I think, I think the only sort of, in my understanding, the only sort of glint of hope of real change to me was the New Deal. Uh, th- th- that, was the, that was the moment in, in history where I thought, what I see that this country could have and did indeed take a different turn, you know, toward, toward a more equitable society that didn't sort of snuff out this sort of the, the, the the flame of, 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 of capital uh, and, 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 and greed that, 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 that powers this, this machine that is America Uh, while keeping that running this machinery going there was also uh, uh, a glint at a, at a at a fairer society, you know, that that took care of its citizens. And I haven't honestly seen anything. Any, it wasn't perfect, of course. I mean, the, the, there are a number of holes in that program that we could, you know, uh, uh, analyze. But um, uh, uh, I haven't seen anything since, and I think it's it's becoming increasingly unlikely. Sadly, you know, I have I have a child, so I say this with a heavy heart. 
Well, maybe things have to get much worse before they get better. I mean, that that seems to be the nature of, of these cycles. So we'll see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's going to be very painful for a lot of people when Ern- it gets worse. Hernan Diaz, his new novel is Trust. Hernan, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you.